from Kurtco Media. I'm pretty proud of the engines that I've been building. I take it very seriously. And 90% of the motors, I run on a dyno and we calibrate and tune and we try different stuff. We use it as an opportunity to really test it in a controlled environment before it goes in the chassis. That was the voice of Marlon Goldberg, our guest today on Cars That Matter. This is Cars That Matter. This is Robert Ross with another episode of Cars That Matter. Welcome this afternoon to my guest, Marlon Goldberg, owner and founder of Workshop 5001 in Los Angeles. Marlon, welcome. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. You're a near neighbor, certainly not within walking distance. You're down around Exposition Boulevard in a really interesting shop. For those who want to know what Workshop 5001 is, it's a Porsche 911 paradise. That's what I'd call it. And not one that you're probably going to notice from the street exactly. Exactly. But once you get inside, it's really an amazing sight. You and your team polish primarily Porsche 911s to perfection. We had a chance to take a look at a number of your cars, and I want to talk about those later in the show. Your shop's easy to overlook, though, because there's no sign. Well, there is a sign, but our, our sign is the bare minimum requirement as per DMV. Because at first, I had no signage whatsoever. Then when I got my dealer license, there are signage requirements. So they give you a size that a minimum size. So we are the minimum size sign just to keep the building as below radar as possible. You got a peephole in the door with no door handle. By the look of the gray cinder block facade, you'd have no idea what's going on inside of the place. And that's the first clue that it's a very special skunk works. Yeah. And of course you get inside and it's just fastidiously appointed. I mean, your shop I think could be as easily mistaken for some kind of open plan architectural firm or design firm as a place that builds automobiles. So I think you're a little bit of an outlier, Marlon. I could almost expect to see like Fairy Porsche in his tweed jacket and a pipe, you know, kind of walking around and checking things out. He'd be very much at home there. We wanted the building to sort of reflect the ethos of everything we do because I'm I maybe not as obsessed with old buildings and real estate as I am with cars, but it's close. I looked at the building when I bought it as a restoration project similar to how I would approach a car, repurposing what was a really neat structure. It's a early 1950s bow truss warehouse. Growing up in New York, I didn't see a lot of these bow truss buildings, but there's a lot of them here in LA. So when I set out looking for a building, I really, really wanted a bow truss building. I thought it's just sort of iconic kind of mid-century warehouse. And then we modified it accordingly to serve our purposes, but we also wanted to do it in a way that the design was simple and timeless. Uh, You know, it's just my approach with everything I put my hands on, whether it's a vehicle or a property or whatever I'm playing with. Simple and timeless, kind of like a Porsche 911, huh? Yeah, I mean, because of the other cars I'm into, personally, you know, I really like Land Rovers, Land Rover series trucks, Defenders. They're in a lot of ways the truck equivalent of a 911. Tell us, what does Workshop 5001 mean? Where'd the name come from and how to get started and what's your mission? A lot of shops are autosport or motorsport or, you know, something very car-ish. And we wanted something that people didn't necessarily know what it was. I mean, 5001 is actually our address and it's a workshop for people who walk by. We don't want them to know, are we working on cars? Are we working on wood? Are we working on metal? It's irrelevant. It's just a workshop. The real 
full name of the business is LA Workshop 5001 Inc. So when I was setting up the LLC that owns the building and the corporation that owns the business, I was dealing with an attorney in New York who's a long, longtime family friend. And so it was all just getting paperwork done and being matter of fact, and we just needed a name. So there's no super exciting or glamorous story. It's a purpose-built name, I guess you could say. Kind of like some of the cars. They're very purpose-built. You've sure got a wide array of them. If you had to kind of give us an elevator pitch, what is the mission of Workshop 5001? Is there kind of a mission statement that you guys go by? You know, there isn't. <laughs> we just kind of do our thing with as little sort of BS as possible. Our mission is in the automotive industry, it's a service business. It's about first and foremost, taking care of our clients and when we're entrusted to take care of their cars. So it goes hand in hand, this responsibility of, of taking care of the clients, doing right by them and their car and restoration. There's sometimes different approaches. People want totally stock and original, or they want maybe period correct modifications, or they want, I sort of hate the term resto mod, but a modified car that's restored and you have a combination of new and old technology, or the car looks like an old car, but has modern motorsport componentry. We try to do each project uniquely so that it kind of ties back into doing the right thing to the car. Restoration can't be cookie cutter. You just do the same thing to every car because not every car has the same set of needs. So you're either shortcutting or you're being wasteful to just do one thing over and over. So we truly treat each project uniquely. It's like a made-to-measure suit. And isn't it amazing? I mean, I guess the 911 really affords an artist the opportunity to really use it as a blank canvas and do just about anything that you want to do with it. And of course, you've acknowledged being respectful to the car, especially if it has some historic integrity or whatnot. But I can't imagine a car that just lets you do more to it almost than a 911. They're just incredible. And a huge interchangeability of parts is a big part of it. You look at the so-called Porsche DNA, and I think DNA is an overused term, but if there is such a thing as Porsche DNA, man, it's wound up just as tight as a lot of those owners that own those cars. I mean, that is the one tight-wound helix. So it's got links that connect it from the very first prototype from 1963. You look at a modern 992 and the C-pillar, and you can just see these cars, I mean, it's literally a chip off the old block. And that's an amazing thing. I'd love to talk about some of the cars you've built, Marlon, and for my recent visit there was a wonderful 911 Lightweight that you had, had done. It was an early car. I likened it to one that was sort of in the spirit of like an old 68 911 TR Racer, one of the real rarities that you never get a chance to see. Before we talk about that car, tell me what makes the early cars so special, like the pre-74 cars? The 1965 through 73 cars are considered the long hood. Then within that, the earliest cars were short wheelbase. Now, there's a few other little differences and nuances, and they changed the gearbox for 72. But I would say those are probably the most coveted of 911s because that's the original design from a visual standpoint. Whereas by 1974, they had to put impact bumpers on. So you had government or I guess sanctioning bodies of automotive safety telling you, okay, well, this is what a car needs. And that compromised the aesthetic design. And what's funny is now the impact bumper cars have a big part of the history of these cars from, you know, 74 to 89, they kind of had that design. Now, a lot of people like them. There are some people who backdate them 
them or do different things to them. But I think the impact bumper cars look great and they're classic and iconic looking as well. The majority of the clients who we deal with, they don't just have one. It's easy to justify having multiple 911s because they are different enough, even though, you know, to someone who doesn't know the cars, oh, they all look the same. What do you need 10 911s for? But if you're into them and you've driven all the different versions, there's enough nuances of each kind of generation or even from one year to the next that you can justify owning different ones, different configurations. I mean, even now it's hard to even keep track of all the different variants that Porsche does. Carrera, Carrera S, Carrera 4, 4S, GTS, then a Carrera 4 GTS and Turbo, Turbo S, GT3, GT, you know, it goes on and on. It's bewildering. You've got 40 different models that are subsumed within that 911 nameplate. It's justified. And in a way, it makes more sense to me than like a lot of the manufacturers do. It's one of my sort of pet peeves of automotive design are these coupe SUVs. Man, what is that all about? Porsche's doing it too. They do a Cayenne coupe. And actually my mom ordered one. She's getting one. She really <laughs> likes the car, but they, they make no sense to me. Porsche, I guess, jumped on the bandwagon with that a little later. And if anything, the Porsche version sort of makes more sense than some of the others, but it's like an X4 BMW or a GLE coupe Mercedes. It's like, I don't get it. Well, you know, I don't either, Marlon. I've driven all those things. But 20 different 911s make sense. You know, you're absolutely right. And getting back to those 911s, the amazing thing, of course, is because the history goes back so far. I mean, you've literally evolved an engine from two liters up to four liters over the course of the decades. So, I mean, it's an amazing concept to have taken this thing and literally doubled its capacity and quadrupled the performance. But there's something about those early cars. And boy, I saw a heck of an example that you had built up. Tell us about your 68 the 68 came to me it was a vintage race car it was running hsr vara and it was pretty battle scarred and then we sold it to a client with the intention of turning it back into a road car but with the vibe of a vintage race car like you know one of the things that's become popular in europe is the two liter cup series and with those i think they're using sort of fia rules the cars have to be very similar if not identical to what they were back in the day whereas vintage race cars in this country you could have twin plug msd boxes more sort of American hot rod parts kind of thrown at these cars to, for all intents and purposes, just make them more reliable and easier to service. But that series over there, the cars have to be very original. So we wanted to do something that sort of had that look and vibe, not as much stripped out race car, but, you know, still had full doors and windows because that's kind of how those cars are. Essentially like that look and vibe, but a cheater car so that it would run away from one of those because those are all kind of two liters or maybe depending on the rules we're running 2.1 or a little bit they're working pretty hard to do their job but we built this 68 chassis with a two and a half liter twin plug and it's a little monster it was like a fire breathing dragon when you fired that up and we took it out i was hugely impressed but talk about the sweet spot of the engine what made your decision to do a 2.5 liter on that car in the configuration i did it with the 86.7 millimeter pistons and cylinders you know it was a relatively high compression setup 
that Molly Motorsport had done for certain race class because it actually we call it a two and a half, but it's really like two four nine or I forget the exact number, but it's just under the two two five. What I ended up doing is we tried making some modifications, actually raise the compression ratio, and ultimately I ended up having a custom piston made to be ten and a half to one compression. I just like building different engines. That's within all the work we do of restoring the cars. My passion is really building the engine. And and at this point, the business has evolved in such a way that at least 90% of my time is taken up with building engines. I've been building one after the other for as far back as I can remember at this point. I like to do different motors. You know, a lot of guys are scared of using magnesium crankcases because they can be more prone to leak. They require more machine work, but I do a bunch of them. I've done at least five or six in the last year alone. This was built on a 72 mag case. That's what I had started with. So each motor, is I want it to be a little bit of a unique challenge. So I'm not building the same thing over and over. I mean, even though a 911 motor, I guess the 911 motor, there's a lot of little changes, little detail stuff. So I, I just like to mix it up. You were telling me earlier, we were talking that your dad's a cardiologist. So there may be something that kind of runs parallel with that sensibility. It's precision work and it's the heart of the car, certainly. To take that on as your real signature effort, it must be pretty gratifying. What really translates over the most is just the work ethic and taking care of people, taking care of their cars. I think that as a doctor, their goal is to keep people alive, <laughs> not really to experiment. I do <laughs> I do a lot of experimenting with stuff that might be frowned upon in the medical community, but in the in the car and hot rod community, it's what people want. So, or we sometimes joke hot rodding is figuring out what doesn't work. <laughs> well, man, you sure did some experimenting on this engine, although obviously you had an idea how it was going to come out. What, like a 911T puts out, what, a 120 or 30 horsepower or something like that. Yeah. And this motor's about 230 and torque was 180-ish. So not big numbers, but in a car that weighs 2,000 pounds on his high compression, the thing really pops. I mean, it's really like a little firecracker. And the other thing worth mentioning on that motor is that it's carbureted. It has a distributor. So it's a very old school, simplistic engine versus a lot of the later motors that I do where I run them on a MoTeC computer or uh, you know something similar from the motorsport world. I have Kinsler making me throttle body. So it's modern motorsport fuel injection. So we can do it both ways. It kind of ties back into just my fascination with working with all the different engines and the different fuel delivery systems, whether it's carburetors, CIS, MFI, EFI, it's good to know all of them. Because what I notice, kind of within the Porsche community is that guys who are more service shops who do a lot of the older cars, they're familiar with all the different versions as they need to be. And especially because in California, you know, a lot of these cars still have to pass smog, like CIS cars, like 911 SCs, 930s. I mean, they need to be running perfect to pass smog. So the guys who are doing service work tend to know the the different versions pretty well. And that was kind of my background originally was coming from the dealer world and the service end and then getting involved in the custom and restoration part. But what I see on it's, I guess, a little bit of a pet peeve is that you have a lot of these guys who have come into the Porsche community that don't come from a traditional service and 
Porsche dealer training background, and they just want to throw EFI on everything. They're just trying to sell a kit and they're doing a disservice because a lot of situations make a carbureted car run better than a fuel injected car. Yeah, they sure look a lot better. I'll tell you, I was looking at that uh, engine on the bench in your shop with the quartet of PMO carbs on there, man, that's just a work of art. The PMOs are relatively inexpensive and they're, re- they're a great product. We have Kinsler making our throttle bodies and those are like a work of art, but from a throttle body standpoint, they're three times the price of anything else on the market, but they're more than three times better of a product than anything else we've worked with in the world of custom individual throttle bodies. So if you have a 911 SC that's all original and on its CIS, keep it running that way. And I, I do a lot of motors that we leave them that way. I don't try to sell everyone EFI. We reserve that for sort of special projects. And part of the reason we do it is that our sort of partner for wiring and the motorsport electronics, we work with a company called Sakata and Brian Sakata is the only person I would trust to tune one of my engines. I mean, and he's world-class. I mean, he's doing it for people at the highest levels of motorsport and only doing very special projects. A lot of these other people who claim to be tuners and setting up EFI, you know, they're operating out of their backpack. They'll blow up your engine on a dyno and say, oh, I, I got to go. I got another appointment. And they're out the door and they're gone like the wind. And either they blew up your engine or it doesn't cold start or it runs like shit or whatever it is. So like I said, it, it all ties back back into doing the right thing by a client and the car on an individual basis and being able to work with all the different systems that came on these cars. The ability to get a system working the way it was intended to work, it's got to be very gratifying. Yeah, but it becomes time consuming. For example, if I go through a CIS car and we recalibrate everything, all of a sudden I go to start it up in the chassis for the first time, they don't always, <laughs> they don't always just start. You know, It's like, okay, well, we just went through everything. Now Now we got to start looking at pressures and digging in and figuring out why it's not running right. So we have this conversation now. I say, oh, it's great. We do all this different stuff. But when I'm a few days deep into making a car run right and banging my head against the wall, it's like, shit, I should have just put EFI on. (laughs) But no, we work through it and we always get it figured out. But the clients who come to us, they understand that this stuff takes time and we're not doing charity work. And if you want your old toy to work correctly, it's time and material. And that's the only way we can make sense of it. And if that doesn't make sense to them, then they probably shouldn't have an old car or they should go somewhere else. (laughs) People are always surprised when I tell them how many new cars I have. I mean, I have old cars. Of course, I love old vintage cars, but new cars are fantastic too. Old cars are not for everyone in every situation. And I think in the next few years, we're going to see even more of a transition as we have this push for electric cars. You're going to see less and less gas cars produced, and there's going to be a bigger gap between transportation and automotive toys. We'll be right back in just a moment here on Cars That Matter. Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind. We're back with Marlon Goldberg on Cars That Matter. 
An early 9-11 is a pretty demanding little dance partner. And if you step out of line, you can be looking down the oncoming traffic in the wrong lane. You had some fun with that car kind of zipping through the back roads of L.A., you know, and back near the airport and all that. And it certainly acquitted itself beautifully with some very deft driving. I was amazed by the torque of that car and the just explosive nature of it. Of course, it's, you know, it still sounds like a Porsche engine, but it was one that sounded more like a 50 caliber machine gun than rocks in a can. It was a very, very satisfying sound. I'm pretty proud of the engines that I've been building. I take it very seriously and they come out very nice. Almost every engine I build gets run on an engine dyno before it goes in the chassis. Something is very close to stock or it's running on its original CIS or it's Bosch Motronic DME, then we just stick them in the chassis and run them. But 90% of the motors I run on a dyno and we calibrate and tune and we try different stuff like that carbureted motor in the two and a half, you know, I made jetting changes on the dyno, use it as an opportunity to really test it in a controlled environment before it goes in the chassis. Part of the thrill of driving these old cars fast is knowing that they're actually going to stop and be safe and they have a suspension that's kind of up to the power output too. So you do a lot of work on those. How do you typically approach a suspension in these old Porsches? Similar to brakes and other subcomponents of the car that you kind of have to go through the whole system. That way, you know, everything is fresh, that you don't have dry rotted rubber, you don't have questionable, rusty, crusty hardware. So certainly when we're doing a full restoration, it's kind of like building a new car. If there's serviceable items, of course, we rework them and use them, but all the hardware is brand new. I mean, we we're really doing what we can to build a new car, but not be wasteful. With the suspension, it's obviously about it being fresh, but then a couple of the manufacturers we work with for suspension stuff like uh, Olean's and KW, we're getting very specialized hand-built suspension kits that really bring the cars to the next level of performance. But we can do a more simplistic approach like Bilstein shocks are, are still good if, it, if it's something that's on a little bit of a tighter budget. And some cars we switch to coil over, but a lot of the cars we, we keep torsion bar. There's nothing wrong with torsion bars. It just takes a little longer to set them up and make adjustments. But other than that, I mean, you know, 911s were designed around the torsion bars. It's the, they work very well when they're set up correctly. I really was all over that interior. What a beautiful, beautiful execution of a clean Spartan interior, but just the, the stitching, the materials, everything was flawless. Tell us about how you arrive at some of those things. That one was sort of an exercise for us that we said, okay, we want to do this interior with no leather and we want to not spend a lot of money on this one, but make it look like we spent a lot. <laughs> so we just sort of set up a challenge for ourselves in that regard. And we use MB Techs, which is like the sort of fancy vinyl that Mercedes uses that is nicer than most leather and sort of indestructible. The last, you know, Mercedes that my wife had a station wagon. We have little kids. We used to call it the barf wagon. So, Oh, yeah, that's exactly it. That MB Tex is bulletproof. So the MB Tex holds up to little kids and barfing, <laughs> you know, no problem. We did that. We used Perlon. We used Alcantara. So all these synthetic materials. And, uh, and it came out looking phenomenal. And the majority of the cars we do, we use very fancy leather. But sometimes the more expensive and the fancier the leather is, the more delicate it is. I mean, it's soft. It's beautiful. It smells 
smells great, but it doesn't always hold up well. Even ones that are intended and treated for automotive purposes, they're delicate. You have to be careful with them. So it's another thing where keep ourselves entertained. We, we like to mix it up and try different things and work with different materials. Beautiful stitching in there too. And certainly those little houndstooth seat inserts and the headliner insert was, was just fantastic. Well, some people call it the pepita or the houndstooth. I've always liked it, but it's one of those things that in recent years feels a little played out. You know, you have cars that were never built with it originally that all of a sudden have it and they've been restored. You know, because people like it. It's it's a neat kind of period correct pattern. And I said, well, I'd like to use it, but I don't want to do what everyone else does. So let's come up with an idea. And I saw seats, I forget what car it was, but some of these kind of hyper cars and some of the seats that Recaro is doing now, they're actually making contact pads rather than fully foaming and leathering the seat. So I had the idea, well, let's kind of mix new and old. So I'm going to use this Pepita houndstooth, but we're going to do it as contact pads on these Tillet seats that are- Little thin shell things. They're like a potato chip. Vintage race car and go-kart seat, but have the low back, no headrest, little to no concern for safety, but they look right in that era of car. And I, I think we we executed it well. And I don't know that I would go do it immediately in another car. It was something that was u- unique to this project that we had fun with. Uh, and I think it uh, looks great. And I'm sure there'll be some people who love it and some people who don't, and that's okay. You look at that car from a, you know 10 feet, you'd think it was an absolutely original car. You know, we left that as a skinny body car, the correct fenders to a 68. The wheels are 15 by sixes. So they're a little bigger than what that car would have had originally, but they stuff the fenders a little more when it's a skinny body like that. So it gives it that sort of vintage race car look and it's running on Avon vintage race tires. So yeah, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about wheels and fitment and what tires we use and the stance is important, but we also joke, we set up cars with the get in your driveway stance. You know, some people like the look of a car that's really low. And that doesn't necessarily equate to being functional or actually being fast. You make these cars too low, you start running into like bump steer issues. They get unsettled very easily. So it's about finding the sweet spot. So functionality is always the most important thing. But I I found when it's set up right, that it's driving well, it, it it does look good too. Looking at some of the projects of Workshop 5001, I see that there is no formula. So inevitably, I mean, you know, comparisons to some of the other builders of so-called hot rod 911s, you think about Singer's 964-based cars or Gunther Works and their 993-based cars. I mean, some of these things are pretty overtly aggressive and that doesn't seem to be your take. How would you characterize your cars? I think the easiest way to sum it up is that they all appeal to... A different audience. So the people who would buy a Singer are different than the people who would come to me for a car. I was at Singer in the early days there and built the first 964 chassis cars. And so essentially had my hands in, I don't know, the first 12 or 15 cars or so. But that was a different time and 964s were not worth what they're worth now. It wasn't as big of a shame to backdate the bodywork, but you know, that car is a package and 
it was very much so a, a marketing exercise, putting those cars out there. And, you know, as people have been hot rodding cars and hot rodding Porsches for as long as they've been around. But I think within the Porsche world, that was the first time it was sort of packaged and presented almost as a product. It was kind of like, well, pick your colors, pick your stickers, and it'll be the next one sort of on the assembly line. So it was interesting at the time for me. But, you know, after two years, I, I lost interest. There's only so many times you can build the same thing over and over. So even though we tend to do more than one of these cars at a time, like, you know, we ended up, you know, the short wheelbase that you rode in was built back to back with a 1967 right-hand drive short wheelbase that we've not publicized that car because it's a specific client request to keep it below the radar. But you know, we built two short wheelbases. Right now we're building five 964s. So we do find ways to find economy of scale and it just sort of naturally has, has worked out that way. But we still are able to do it in a way that the car is unique to the client, which also allows us to work with different budgets. So it's not like you come in and it's fixed price and we just do 964s and they're $800,000. It's uh, we can do a 964 that has modern motorsport componentry throughout or throughout or it's totally original or it can be a full restoration or it can be just a mechanical overhaul. So we're able to you know, work with a much broader range of projects. Absolutely. I know I'd seen the car that you'd done that went to Hong Kong. It was a remarkable restoration with some very, very tasteful updates. And what a great approach to bringing an old car back to life. The 964 that went to Hong Kong, funny enough, that was a car that had been backdated to look like an early long hood. It was done by some shop in the UK and they did a horrendous job. And it was like a family heirloom car that the client really into 964s. That's actually the third car that we've done for, you know, we've done three 964s just for that one client. That had been his father's car. At the time, they, I guess it had been a tired daily driver that his father had used every day in Hong Kong and it needed a refresh and they sent it to the UK. It was backdated. I mean, not only was the look of a 964 compromised, but the workmanship from a mechanical standpoint was not done well. So they changed the look of the car and they sort of went backwards mechanically rather than restoring it. So, you know, we had to start from scratch and turn it back into a 964. So there was something satisfying about that. It's not the first backdate we've undone. And I think we'll be seeing more and more uh, people, especially with the 964 era cars, where they realize they made or someone previous owner before them made a, a really, really horrible mistake in changing the bodywork. And it would not surprise me at all if the day comes where we're turning singers back into 964s. And of course, the other side of the coin is that when the 964s came out, everybody was updating their old 911s to look like 964s. And I mean, it's just, you know, all over the map. I mean, right. cars and people have to act their age, damn it. Yeah. And then the 993 came out and no one cared about the 964. And every Porsche magazine was once they started building the water-cooled cars and they'd have the articles about which one to buy, they told, buy the 993 because that's the last one ever made. I mean, 993s are great, but there are people who argue all day long whether a 964 is better than a 993 or, you know, vice versa. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media.
Welcome back to Cars That Matter. Do you want to just say something about clown cars? Just give me an opinion. Come on, get me going. Get get our audience going. What is your real opinion about the kind of 9-11 culture, the aesthetic? What What's wrong and what's right? We met with a client not that long ago who said to me, he says, I want a hot rod, but I don't want anyone to know I'm driving a hot rod. That's pretty cool and understated. And I would say that the opposite end of the spectrum and what I call the sort of clown cars are these guys who will take a nice car and just do stupid shit to it. I told you a story. We had this beyond perfect 1987 9-11 that had belonged to two of my clients. And before that, it was a one owner car. And the guy kept every service record. He owned it for 25 plus years. It was as perfect as an 87 Carrera can get. A real time capsule car, the kind of car that you have a responsibility to take care of for the next generation. We sold it to an adult, (laughs) you know, who I thought was a reasonable person. And then I start seeing online on this guy's Instagram, hashtag outlaw. He's one of these guys who wants to do goofy stuff to their car and drive around looking like a clown. Look, to each is their own. I shouldn't care. But I made the analogy to certain people, even though this wasn't my personal car, it was still owned by two of my clients who were fanatical about it. And these cars very often come back to us because sometimes clients, they drive the car for a little bit, then they want to experience something different if they don't have the garage space for 20 cars. So we buy and resell these cars a lot. And there's a lot of clients looking for something that's stock and original and preserved. And this was one of those cars. So it was really sacrilege to ruin it. And look, I care about these cars. I care about what I do. It's like if you're a dog breeder, and you sold a puppy to someone and they ate the thing or killed it. You know, I mean, it was like, it was that gut wrenching. Like I said, I shouldn't care, but I was just so pissed. And then the client who owned it last, he's a local guy in LA, was in the movie business, he'd always been into Porsches. And he'd only sold the car because his back was bothering him and he wasn't using it. So he's been feeling a little better. We found him a 356. He used to own a bunch of 356s. And so we spent a lot of time together in the last couple of weeks through the journey the journey of buying him another 356. And it sort of came up in conversation and I told him what happened to his old car and he was beside himself. And I said, you know, I'm sorry I even told you. My wife told me not to tell you. He was pissed. He, If I had known this guy would have done this, we never would have sold him the car. I said, look, I wouldn't have either. I had no idea. I was just baffled to see this. And then after I commented to the guy and I, you know, I tried to be polite. I didn't really use foul language with him or anything like that, but he blocked me on Instagram. Well, you don't need friends like that anyway. Let's face it. The Porsche community doesn't need them either because, boy, I see a lot of clowns with these things too. Yeah, I think I told you there was someone who commented through a friend of mine who's in the business about my cars. He goes, well, it doesn't look like he does anything at all. Like, yeah, that's that's the point. (laughs) So I just, to do just fake cosmetic stuff, it's just goofy. You ever see that movie Office Space where Jennifer Aniston works in one of these chain restaurants? It's supposed to be like a TGI Fridays or Bennigan sort of a place. And with the jacket and the pins, they call it your flair. You got to have your, oh, you don't have enough flair on your vest. It's like these dorks putting stickers all over their cars. You know, they look like schmucks. Let me ask you another question, Marlon, because I just have to know if a genie handed you keys to two or three cars, what would those be? It's hard to pin down which era of 9-11, but I would have to say it would be an air-cooled 9-11, a new GT car, whether it's a GT3 or a GT4, and then a, a Land Rover Defender. 
but it might have to be four because a new defender and an old defender. <laughs> <laughs> that new defender is great, but that's a whole different program, isn't it? Boy, I love that car. You talk about electrification, Marlon. I guess you get the order in for that GT3 now before the next generation when they end up having a couple of extra batteries in the floorboards to run the things as a hybrid. I personally think there will be a few more generations of GT cars with internal combustion engines. I think that Porsche will hold on to that for as long as possible, even if everything else they build becomes electric at some point. I'll be surprised if high revving, naturally aspirated flat six disappears quickly. I think we're safe for a little while. Thanks to Marlon Goldberg, owner and founder of Workshop 5001, for joining us today on Cars That Matter. Come back next time as we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross, produced by Chris Porter, edited by Chris Porter, theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick, additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.